0: On Friday, October 7th, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence released a statement, and it was a pretty stunning announcement.
1: Barely two and a half months after a cyber attack was revealed on the Democratic National Committee,
2: the Obama administration laid the blame at the feet of Russia's President Vladimir Putin, with a strongly the U.S.
1: government publicly blaming a foreign country for attacking a U.S. entity. That's an incredibly rare thing. I was surprised when I saw the statement come out, uh, even though it's something that uh, private cybersecurity experts have been talking about for a while. Uh, the government formally blaming a foreign entity has only happened a handful of times.
0: And specifically here, the U.S. was accusing Russia of hacking the Democratic Party right as voters prepared to go to the polls on November 8th.
1: It's a scary prospect. Could hackers tamper with or even obliterate our votes?
0: So here's my question. We are so close now to Election Day, and you can tell because that's really all you see on TV right now. So how do we know for sure what we think we know about these hacks? This is a
1: perpetual problem in cybersecurity, and it reminds me of the famous New Yorker cartoon that goes, On the Internet, Nobody Knows You're a Dog. But when you're investigating a cybersecurity breach, uh, nobody knows whether you're a Russian hacker or a Chinese hacker pretending to be a Russian hacker or even a U.S. hacker pretending to be a Chinese hacker pretending to be a Russian (laughs) hacker.
0: (laughs) Or as Donald Trump put it so delicately.
1: I don't think anybody knows it was Russia that broke into the DNC. She's saying Russia, 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 but I don't, maybe it was. I mean, it could be Russia, but it could also be China, it could also be lots of other people. It also could be somebody sitting on their bed that weighs 400 pounds, okay?
0: And how is the US, or anyone else for that matter, so certain that the Russians are trying to hijack our elections? What should an ordinary voter do, and should we even care? i Aki Ito. And I'm Jordan Robertson. And this week on Decrypted, we're going to take you inside the hunt for the people who hacked the Democratic National Committee. It's
1: a sordid tale of how two of the world's great superpowers have found themselves locked in an escalating information war just weeks before millions of Americans go to the polls.
0: And the stakes? They really couldn't be any higher. Not only is this the most divisive election we've seen in recent memory with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump advocating for completely different visions of America, but also hanging in the balance is the democratic process itself. What happens to a country's sovereignty in the age of the internet? Our story today starts in April, when the IT staff at the Democratic National Committee noticed something a little weird going on in their network. For our non-American listeners, this is the official organization behind the Democratic Party, the DNC. And the IT staff there, they escalated their concerns to their executives, and a cybersecurity firm called CrowdStrike was called in to investigate.
1: So CrowdStrike is one of a small group of digital forensics firms uh, that uh, really all they do is investigate data breaches and they went in, they installed software in the DNC servers essentially allowing them to spy on the spies and it didn't take them long to pin the attacks on two groups of hackers associated with the Russian government They called these groups Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear (laughs)
0: Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear. Is this some kind of industry inside joke? Uh, Yeah,
1: the cybersecurity industry uh, has a lot of kind of goofy, funny names for groups. They're thematic, uh, often associated with a region. Uh, Some others are called Deep Panda and and things like that.
0: (laughs) I love that. Uh,
1: Then CrowdStrike closed all the security holes that had allowed the attackers to breach the DNC servers so the hackers wouldn't be able to read the staff's emails anymore.
0: Now, normally, you don't really disclose this kind of thing unless you absolutely have to. It's certainly embarrassing for the DNC, especially when, as we learn later, they were warned about their network's vulnerabilities and ended up ignoring those early warnings.
1: But the DNC may have had a hint that some of this information was about to be leaked on the Internet. So they dropped this bombshell.
0: But first, the Democratic National Committee said today, Russian government hackers have penetrated its computer network. Breaches by two separate groups allowed hackers to access emails, internal chats, and opposition research. Democrats have compiled on presumptive Republican nominee Donald Trump. That's PBS NewsHour reporting the hack on June 14th, the day this all became public. And it hit the U.S. political system like a bolt of lightning. People were furious. How dare Russia try to mess with America? That type of thing. And then, one day
1: after the DNC announcement, someone or a group of people who go by the name Guccifer2.0 came out in a blog post and basically laughed in the DNC's face. This person was like, no, you idiots. I am the lone hacker that infiltrated the DNC. And this had nothing to do with the Russians. And Guccifer2.0 released a bunch of documents that he claimed he had stolen from the DNC as evidence that he was behind it.
0: And from there, it was chaos. Was it the Russians? Was it some loner kid who had too much time on his hands? And that's when CrowdStrike called in this guy for help.
2: My name is Mike Buratowski. I'm the Senior Vice President of Cybersecurity Services at Fidelis Cybersecurity here in Maryland. I lead a incident response team of about 30 individuals. And we've handled some of the largest breaches that have, have occurred over the past decade or so.
1: So I've known Mike for several years now, and he's a really interesting guy. He used to be a cop with the Montgomery County Police Department in Maryland, and he looks like an ex-cop. He's got the short, cropped haircut, solidly built guy, and very friendly and uh, you know, very genial. Even before his time in the private sector, he had this long experience of tracking down criminals. Uh, Mike's now an incident responder. In cybersecurity speak, that means he flies out at the drop of a hat to companies that believe they've been breached, and he helps investigate and fix their networks.
0: So like the computer nerd version of CSI or
1: Law and Order. Right. And Mike at Fidelis, his job was to independently verify the group of people who attacked the DNC. And
0: this cybersecurity version of the Who Done It investigation, it's called attribution in the industry. And CrowdStrike had asked Fidelis and two other firms to check their work. So so we had,
2: um, you know, we got five pieces of malware. We had a team of four reverse engineers. That's all they do is reverse engineering. So we had them bang on it.
0: <laughs> Jordan, I think we should explain this to our listeners. Sure. So CrowdStrike sent Mike's team
1: five files of the computer code that was on the DNC servers and was responsible for stealing information from the emails. And the job of Fidelis and these two other firms was to look at this code in what's called a virtual environment.
0: Like a parallel universe.
1: Right. It's a simulated computer system where the code can't do any damage on the real servers. Hackers use all kinds of tricks to prevent their malware from even opening in that kind of hall of mirrors. So a key job of an investigator is decoding all of those techniques to see how the attack code actually behaves.
0: Okay, and then Mike's team, they compared that behavior to documented code in the past that was linked to the two hacker groups associated with the Russian government. And CrowdStrike called these two groups Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear.
1: And the clues surfaced immediately
2: you know, really there were a couple of things that that we looked at. So you look at the complexity of of what the malware was able to do. The fact that it had the ability to um, basically uh, terminate itself and wipe its, its tracks, hide its tracks, you know that's not stuff you see in commoditized malware really. It kills itself. It kills itself, yeah, and actually one of the functions within the one of the pieces of malware um, had, had a terminology for essentially Harry Carey um, to, to kill itself.
0: So this automatic suicide switch, this is something that's incredibly sophisticated.
1: Right. I mean, this is one of the reasons that uh, Fidelis and CrowdStrike and the other forensics researchers were so taken aback by this malware. You know, there's a a black market uh, for pre-built malware uh, on the Internet that even somebody like me can piece together. So, like, malware can be like Legos. But this feature of killing yourself to avoid getting detected, that's really complicated stuff. And that's when Mike's team knew they were dealing with real pros here. You know, there aren't a ton of people around the world who have this level of sophistication, and there were a bunch of other things that backed up this conclusion too.
2: The the level of access that the malware gave the malicious user um, was pretty astonishing. Uh, it was also written very, very um, well. I, I guess elegant is probably a good way to to say it. It was not sloppy by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and again, so you start looking at, okay, who would have had the capability to do that? And you know, we, we talked earlier how, you know, yeah, you can have somebody on the inside do something, but they may not be the, the best at it. So you have, uh, you've got to have people who are a lot of experience doing it or a lot of training to do it. And um, it, was, it was a very complex piece of malware that the average person probably couldn't use. Uh, it's also not something that we've seen Uh, out in the wild, necessarily. It's very targeted, uh, pieces of malware, um, very limited. You can't
1: buy it on the black market. You can't buy these components. Not that,
2: no, not that we've come across.
0: Okay, okay, so so far we know that this attack was orchestrated by someone really, really good, someone really, really experienced. And that immediately limited the pool of people who could be responsible for this. It really limited the pool of people to someone with the kind of resources with backing from an entire government.
1: And on top of that, there were a bunch of things that pointed to the code being written in Russia.
0: Yeah, some of these details are really interesting. So
1: one of the most uh, fascinating for me is you know, from the way the code was written, it was clear that it was written on a Russian language keyboard. And the dates and times that the code was uh, compiled was during normal business hours in Russia. And that's consistent with the code that's already been traced back to the Russian government-backed hackers in the past.
0: And that's not something that you can easily fake, right? Like change the timestamps or something?
1: Yeah, that was my question too. But Mike said there are so many different things that you'd have to consistently change to successfully pull off that spoof.
2: You're dealing with a situation that if it was a one-off Easier to change, you know, same same thing with, you know, you can change the date and time on your computer. Absolutely, you could do that and it would potentially throw an investigator off. Consistently across five pieces of malware? Okay, you know, probably a little more difficult. Across X number of pieces of malware, across how many incidents, and to all have them point to the same place.
1: And that's why Mike doesn't buy Trump's theory of this 400-pound man sitting on the bed orchestrating this incredibly sophisticated attack. And why he doesn't buy Guccifer 2.0's claim that he was a lone hacker.
2: Okay, is it a script kitty or is it somebody who bought a piece of malware? Or is it, you know, somebody drinking Mountain Dew and eating Twinkies in mom's basement? No, it, it, it really needs a level of operational discipline that you don't see really in the wild. And you're right, the number of people who could pull it off, it becomes dramatically narrower. So, Aki, are you convinced?
0: I mean, <laughs> I think so. I don't know. I keep on expecting a twist like you're, you're tricking me, like in Law and Order, when the guy who seems really suspicious turns out to be innocent in the end.
1: I like that. Uh, well, here's maybe the most important part, then. You need to look at the target, the victim of this hack, which was the DNC. And it later turned out a broad cross-section of the U.S. political system, everyone from lobbyists to lawyers to Hillary Clinton's campaign. And going back to Mike's background of working in law enforcement, you have to ask, who would have had the motive to pour this kind of effort into spying on key members of American politics?
2: Sure, an opportunistic hacker, you know, putting a feather in their cap saying, hey, we, you know, we broke into the DNC okay, yeah, I mean, that that could potentially happen. Um, But then releasing the emails the evening before the convention started, well, then again, now now you're looking at it, okay, well, you know, that really smacks like an information operation.
0: And here, I think we should remind our listeners of the chronology of the events that took place just a few weeks after the DNC announced the hack in mid-June. I mean, this was a time when the Republican Party was still in complete disarray, but things were looking pretty good for the Democrats. This was a time when Hillary Clinton um, was trying to solidify her support.
1: And you have this forest fire raging on the Internet about this issue. You have WikiLeaks and Guccifer 2.0 publishing a stream of emails that turned out to be really embarrassing for the DNC at you know what couldn't have been a worse time for them.
0: Yeah, like that one from when Bernie Sanders was still in the primary race with Hillary Clinton. And a senior staffer at the DNC talked about how they should try to paint Sanders as an atheist, try to question his Jewish faith.
1: And the party itself is supposed to be neutral.
0: And that led to a lot of turmoil within the party. I mean, the Democratic convention that took place at the end of July... That was kind of a mess, at least at the beginning. All these Bernie supporters were protesting and booing down speakers on stage.
1: And ultimately, DNC chairwoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was a rising young star in the party, she resigned.
0: And bringing us back to our story today, like you said, Jordan, this really does point to motive. I mean, who would really want to introduce this kind of turmoil to the democratic process itself in America, which is, you know, really the sacrosanct thing? Who would want to do this thing that would make you question the fairness of the system that we've developed over the years?
1: Yeah, this project has been interesting to me because I consider myself uh, you know, a pretty serious skeptic on a lot of these claims. It's, it's just way too easy for a hacked entity to throw out, oh, the Russians did this and the Chinese did that or whatever.
0: Yeah, kind of like this get-out-of-jail-free card when your company's been hacked, right? These really sophisticated, organized hackers backed by a whole government. If, if someone like that tries to target you, what could you have possibly done? It's like when we reported about
1: Yahoo's breach, which was this massive, you know, more than 500 million customer accounts getting hacked. We reported that the company's claim of the attack being state-sponsored, you know, isn't so ironclad.
0: But this one with the d n c after talking to Mike after talking to all these other experts, Jordan, are you convinced yeah
1: i'm I'm pretty convinced I mean it takes a lot to clear that hurdle of you've got this piece of malware, and this is evidence that the Russians did it uh you know, but Mike will be the first to tell you this
2: well it's it's always risky I mean you know when you're when you're you're doing attribution, you're really never saying a hundred percent that it's this person because You know, barring seeing somebody at the keyboard and actually doing it or a confession, you're you're relying on that circumstantial evidence. This all comes down to Mike's days as a cop. Can you prove to a
1: jury beyond a reasonable doubt that the Russians did this? And his answer was yes.
0: And now the U.S. government has come out and officially blamed the Russian government.
1: And there are lots of reasons, potentially, for that happening. Uh, There are ways that the government can really know what's going on, intercepted phone calls, intercepted emails, uh, human and signals intelligence sources, in a way that no private cybersecurity could ever match.
0: Sounds a little sinister. Well, we don't
1: know for sure, but here's what Rob Owens, who's an industry analyst at Pacific Crest Securities, told me.
2: Nation states do hack. Uh, I think the U.S. government hacks as well. Well-known fact within the industry that uh, uh, everybody's hacking everybody to some degree.
0: So maybe the U.S. government was spying on Russia while Russia was spying on the DNC? (laughs) Well, we know
1: that uh, both countries spy on each other all the time. But in this case, we don't know exactly what the evidence is, but it's fair to assume that that's the case.
0: And that's why at the top of the show today, you called it an information war, like the Cold War of our generation. Exactly. Exactly. So if we've managed to keep our listeners till now through this complicated journey inside the DNC hack, first of all, <laughs> thanks for sticking with us. And second of all, I think the burning question everyone has now is what's next? So far, it's been about introducing turmoil into the democratic process. And you know, I'm not a US citizen, but my girlfriend is, and I don't think I know anyone who's more excited about voting in November as she is. Could these Russian hackers, could they tamper with her vote?
1: That's one really, really important point here. In reality, it's very hard to hack actual votes. That's why information warfare, like we are potentially seeing here, is so much easier to do. Uh, To do any real damage to the votes, you'd have to actually hack the vote tabulators. And these are computers that sit inside county and state offices counting votes. And those are never supposed to be connected to the Internet. Does that mean you can't hack them ever? Of course not. It would just be a huge undertaking. So I wouldn't worry too much about the hackers stealing your vote. It could happen. It's just not the most likely attack. So what should we be worried about? Well, the biggest threat is actually that the hackers could try to mess with your voter registration records, not your actual vote. If you wanted to actually tamper with the election results, you'd drop people from the voter rolls and make it harder for them to to vote. You know, you change their polling locations to someplace far away, those kinds of things.
0: But I wonder, you know, are the Russians what they want to do? Is it really tampering with these results or is it more about traditional espionage? Is it more about influencing uh, the public perception of these really important people in our democracy? My
1: sense is that if the goal here was to inject kind of chaos into the into the system, and to undermine confidence in the, uh, the democratic system, uh, you know, then that's a really powerful weapon and it's been wielded pretty effectively here.
0: And in the meantime, WikiLeaks is saying that it still has more emails that paint Hillary Clinton in a pretty bad light. And I think we're all on edge here waiting for that bombshell to drop.
1: Yeah, we hear all kinds of things about, you know, it won't be an October surprise, it'll be a November surprise, there'll be more emails. And, you know, with, with hacked communications, you almost never know what you're gonna get. All right. Well, Mike, anything else you want to say about the uh, the industry or specifically, you know, what we what uh, what voters should expect going into November?
2: Um, I would I expect
1: it'll be a wild ride. Going yeah, that's what I
2: was going to say. Put your seatbelts on because you never know what's going to what's going to turn up. Uh, you know, hopefully it'll be uneventful, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it wasn't.
0: Well, that's it for this week's episode of Decrypted. Thanks for listening.
1: And if you have an iPhone, be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes or any of your favorite podcast apps out there. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate and review our show. These ratings and reviews really help get our show in front of more listeners.
0: And let us know what you thought of today's show. I'm on Twitter at akiito 7
1: And I'm at, uh, at JordanR1000.
0: R1000. And our technology team here at Bloomberg is on Twitter at, at technology. This episode was produced by Pia Gedkari, Magnus Henriksson, and Liz Smith, with help from Emily Buso. Alec McCabe is head of Bloomberg Podcasts. We'll see you next week.